The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. So how might you rethink the bargain that you have made with work in light of the recent shifts over the last few years? I mean, as the ground really continues to shift beneath our feet, maybe you're wondering if the meaning you once found in your work still holds true. And if not, what you might be able to do about it. Well, that's where we're headed in today's Sparked Podcast with our guest, best-selling author, Bruce Feiler. So Bruce Bruce is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, including Life is in the Transition and Council of Dads. His TED Talks have been viewed more than 4 million times, and his latest book, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World, offers a really new take on finding meaning and purpose at work based on insights drawn from hundreds of life stories of all vocations and backgrounds. In today's conversation, Bruce takes us into how mining our personal narratives can uncover clues about the work stories that we're longing to tell. He invites us to really question what we've been taught about success and reimagine work in a way that reflects our true selves. We ponder questions like, what new definition of success might truly satisfy your soul? What personal stories hold clues to the work you were made for? And how what role models you had as a kid? And by the way, when he poses this question to me, Something really surprising happens that you'll want to tune into that kind of flusters me a little bit as well. And he wonders how might shifting our focus from numbers to meaning unlock more creativity and joy. So be sure to tune in for a really fun and engaging and insightful and super valuable conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of Hello Monday. In my 20s, I knew what I wanted for my career. But from where I am now, in the middle of my life, nothing feels as certain. Work's changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of any of it. So every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. We talk about making career pivots, about purpose and how to discern it, about where happiness fits into the mix and how to ask for more money. Come join us in the Hello Monday community. Let's figure out the future together. Listen to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Bruce, last time you and I were hanging out, um, it was in the context of a conversation around this term that you coined, um, lifequakes, which really entered the zeitgeist. And I think also it came out at a moment where we were all about to be dropped into profound life quakes where the entire world was turned upside down. And you have since then done a whole bunch of work, including research, focusing more narrowly in on the world of work. And that is not necessarily the thing that you get paid to do, could be, but it's also sort of like the general conversation around like, what is work? And you also, you, you took that original phrase, life quakes, and out of the research that you've been doing and the sort of revelations came this new phrase, work quakes. Um, so take me into this. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And, and I will point out that that transition that I have been in, you have also been in, my friend. Indeed. You're moving from the world of life to the world of work. And what I just like in hearing your amazing voice and kind of jumping right into this is how seamless this all connects with the conversation that we had around life is in the transitions. And so if I take a step back, you know, I had what I now think of as a kind of traditional linear life where I figured out what I wanted to do early and then I did it for no money and then I had some success and got married and had children and then my life blew up. Um, as we discussed uh, previously, I had cancer and had financial troubles and my dad tried to take his own life. And I was a storyteller and I couldn't tell my own life story. And so I decided to plunge in and try to figure out how other people tell their story when they don't know how to tell it. And that's, and I set out on this process that I now call the life story project of collecting and analyzing what has become 400 life stories of people of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states. And the big idea that emerged from the first round of these interviews was that we were all experiencing these life quakes, these massive periods of change. And I think the signature piece of data from that uh, part of the project, what became Life is in the Transitions, is that the average you know, life quake lasts five years. Okay, And if you do the math, we have three to five in our lifetime, four, five, six years. That's 25 years, half of our adult lives we are spending in transition. And we've stigmatized that. Transitions were periods that you grit and grind and, you know, kind of grovel your way through. And I think that that misses this huge opportunity. So I would talk about this project when I was doing it and everyone sort of nodded politely, but they didn't quite get it. And then, as you say, that book came out in the middle of the pandemic when the entire planet was in a life transition. And lots of things happened. As you say, that word did enter, that book caught a nerve, there was a TED talk, I now teach a TED course on navigating transitions. But I realized probably around the time, and this is when you your, your work also pivoted to work, is that work was going to be the next domino to fall. There was a series of converging trends that were going. There was a generational change, right? You had the global health uh, crisis. You had a social justice movement. You had technological disruption that allowed us to work from anywhere, et cetera. And so I set out to do it again. And as you say, 
yet again, the pattern that emerged was that the pace of disruptions is quickening, right? So that we go through what, what you just identified and what I call workquakes 20 times in our lives. That's every 2.85 years. But here's the thing. Women go through them more than men. Uh, Xers go through them more than boomers. Millennials more than Xers. And diverse workers go through them more than non-diverse workers. And so as our workforce work becomes younger and more diverse and more female, then their, their pace is going to increase. And just to say one more comment before we dig into this, I think that the signature piece of data of this project is that 45% of workquakes happen in the workplace. Okay, conflict with your boss, the company, the organization shuts down, right? You you lose your job. But that means that the majority of workquakes, 55%, when you crunch the data, happen outside the workplace, right? Something happens, right? In your head, you have a change of mind, right? Or with your family or with your health. And that is the really the crux of the change. So in the battle and balance, if you will, between life and work, life is playing a much bigger role. Yeah. And I mean, the last few years that we've all been through are just the perfect example of this. You know, we've seen so many headlines, you know, first the pandemic and then the way that it flows into the world of work. There's the great resignation yes. and then there's the boomerangers and then there's quiet quitting. It's like we're going through these cycles and these phases, most of which, as, as you described, like those are in the 55% of things that happen from the outside in, yet they trigger. I, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering about is, is how real is that distinction? Because if something starts from the outside in, let's take the last few years for, as an example, circumstances change, like everything, there's no ground underneath us anymore. And that rattles us. But that then goes internal and starts to make us question everything. Like, is the bargain that we made to get to this place still the bargain we want to keep making to get us to the next place? And then that ripples into the actual day-to-day -day of our work. I think bargain is the word that jumps out of me and what you just said, because I think that, the, that it comes down to the bargain in effect to the deal that we make, right? So as you know, the, the book that I've just written, the search is built around what I call the, the three lies and one truth about work. And right. line number one is that you have a career, okay? And so this idea is an historical aberration. It was only invented a hundred years ago, essentially in Boston, when a third of the workforce, you know, left rural areas and moved into cities and millions more, join them from overseas, and suddenly you had a bunch of new organizations and a bunch of new people who didn't have work, and the idea of the career was invented essentially by this guy, Frank Parsons, in Boston, and he invents career counseling, and within two years, it's all over the country. But here's the thing that's relevant to what you said. This introduces the idea that you make a decision, and by the way, in Parsons' time, it was only if you were a man, once in your early 20s, and then you do that uh, for the rest of your life, okay? And every way that we've talked about work since then has been a linear track, right? The career path, okay? The corporate ladder. Even the resume, which was invented in the 1950s, is a linear progression. Each job is supposed to be bigger and splashier than the one before, okay? And so the, the issue is what you're describing as a relatively kind of robust and familiar thing in contemporary life that something happens to you and you make a pivot is a radical change from what was expected a hundred years ago mm. when you were expected to value the company and do what you were told and go where they wanted you to go. 
right? So I mean, I'll just give you one example here. Okay, so as you know, after sort of laying out how we ended up in this spot, my book essentially introduces this toolkit that I call 21 Questions to Find Work You Love, like things to ask yourself when you're in a work quake to determine what it is that gives you meaning. And the first question I asked everybody was what were the prominent upsides or values of work you learned from your parents? Okay, because we're talking about storytelling. Every story has a backstory. And every you ask questions for a living. Everybody said the same thing. And I was like annoyed. I was like, okay, something must be wrong with this question I'm asking, right? Because it's like the only way to judge a question is by the quality of the answer. And everybody basically said, I learned the value of hard work. When we crunched the numbers, it was two-thirds of people. So I was like, I got, I got to make this more interesting. And so then I started asking people, what was the biggest downside or shadow of work you learned from your parents? And dang, then it got interesting, Jonathan, because the number one answer, overwork. Second, strain on the family. Third, unhappiness. So right there, you're like one question into telling your story of work, and you have got an epic right there. Because what does that tell us? People still want to work hard, but they're no longer prepared to make themselves unhappy, put a strain on your family, you know, and to overwork, which was the norm a hundred years ago. And when there is no career, there is no more stigma to, and there's no path to getting off the path. And that's the change. And that's why 50 million Americans have quit a job in the last year. That's a third of the workforce because it's now acceptable to do that. Yeah, I mean the the notion of um, this shift in stigma, I, th- I think is really interesting that you addressed it because th- that's been spinning in my head literally for the like, last couple of years. But nobody's really been talking about it. You know, like, people are like what happened with the Great Resignation? And in my mind, I was always thinking, well, there was a, a I mean, talk about a quake in normalizing, um, rejecting what came before. You know, like it used to be there was a stigma if you decided, well, like. You know, I'm of a certain age with a certain responsibilities yes. and certain part into life and work and like earning nicely, whatever it may be. Like, you just don't rock that boat. And if you did, people looked at you and kind of said, oh, midlife crisis, they're freaking out, they're melting down, they're having a break or whatever it is. There was an excuse because that behavior was not socially accepted. And then you hit the pandemic and all of a sudden everybody's in that boat. And we hit a tipping point where so many people are actually doing this that it becomes normalized, the stigma goes away. And, you know, it's, it's, it was interesting to see that happened on such a huge scale in such a short amount of time. And now it's sort of like, where do we go from there? <laughs> Well, I think that that's exactly the moment that we're in now. I mean, I think that you 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 absolutely capture. I mean, in the 1950s, those personality tests, a third of companies would give them to the wives of the workers. I mean, like a, a lot of this change is because of the demographical shift in who the workforce is. And I think that, you know, those of us, you and I are 50 plus, um, and those, it, it, what's interesting about work is it flips the, the conventional narrative of contemporary life because the conventional narrative is the 50 plus people saying, you know, get off my lawn to the millennials, right? Why don't you people want to work hard? Um, but in fact, what's going on is that the millennials and Gen Z who are now half the workforce have said well-being, balance, flexibility, you know, autonomy, agency, these, you know, general things under the sort of rubric of, of meaningful work, as I call it in, in the search, they have now given this as their number one objective. 
six and 10 millennials say meaning is more important to them than their boomer parents. But what's going on, Jonathan, is that this has now boomeranged to the boomers who say, I want what they, I want what they're having. (laughs) So the permission structure, which normally goes sort of down the generational, you know, sort of ladder, if you will, is now inverting and going up the generational ladder. So people like you are a perfect example of somebody, by the way, who went through a work quake and, you know, adopted for more meaning. And when we get into this in a second of like, you know, how do you, how do you know what gives you meaning? You know, you change the what that you did. You change the where that you did it. You change the when of what you did it. And that's what I've tried to do is take the who, what, when, where, how, and why and apply them to work. Because what's because work was supposed to be miserable. I would say that the number one thing that's been missing in the conversation of work is, in fact, a toolkit for saying, how do I define happiness? How do I define success? How do I define meaning? And that's exactly what I realized was missing and which is why I built this book around offering those tools to people. Yeah. I, and I love the fact that you're sort of describing the ripple back up the the generational change. It's sort of like, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of like the, like, you know, like when Harry met Sally Diner moment, but for working. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, by the way, what is the, not to put too fine a point on it, but what is the precipitating thing that delivers the iconic line? I want what she's happening. It's a pleasure moment. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. In an uncommon, um, in an uncommon setting. <laughs> right. Right. So let's go there then, because you teed up. Okay, so so let's say we're at this moment where we're kind of thinking, okay, so I know the bargain I made in the past. Um, it's not working for me anymore. Yeah. Me- meaning has actually got to be centered in what I'm doing. I want to actually enjoy my life. It, that has to be centered. And then we then we get into the place where we'll see, well, how do we actually, how do we do this? How do we center the things that I truly value that are not what I thought I valued for the last 10, 20, 30 years, maybe? And as you described, you kind of offer up a toolkit, especially around the context of meaning with sort of a a blend of what you call a meaning audit and a series of questions. So how do we step into this process? What, What does the early part look like here? The early part looks like freeing yourself from the old fashioned script. I mean, I think that work has this tension between what I call the script that we're given by our parents, right? By our religious or ethical upbringing or, you know, or, or by our country. And the story we've been telling in this country since Ben Franklin has been all about climbing up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, uh, you know, bigger office, a greater salary, better view, more benefits, et cetera. But the people who are happiest and most fulfilled, like if you if anybody remembers one thing from this conversation, it would be this. They don't just climb, they also dig, right? They do what I call this meaning audit, and they figure out, they do what I call personal archaeology, <laughs> where you're going to go through your own life story and figure out what is the story you've been trying to tell. So with this tension, the way I see it, between the script that we're given and this internal scripture that you have. And that begins in the past with it, like, well, as we just said, what were um, the, the values of work you learned from your parents? And now I'm going to flip the script on you because I have been looking forward to this question for this precise moment. So another very simple question you can ask is, other than your family, who were your role models as a child? So I'm going to ask you, Jonathan, other than your family, who were your role models as a child and what did you admire about them? Um, so are we talking about the, the world of work or just in general? No, in general. Nothing okay. to do with work. Role models as a child. So I, for me, it would be people in music or sport. Um, okay. So because that was kind of like, I was, I was obsessed with music as a kid. 
so people like Stevie Ray Vaughan or Peter Frampton, um, and but it was less about who they were. And yeah. So what did you admire what about could, that? Yeah. What they could do. Yes. It, it was their capabilities. Although Stevie Ray Vaughan was interesting because it actually passed quite a long time ago now, but um, there was a moment where you could see him on stage shortly before he passed where he was playing with some of the best people in the world. And for those who don't know, Stevie Ray Vaughan is one of the most legendary blues players and guitar players in history. Where you could tell looking at him that he was no longer in his body. He had gone somewhere else hmm, and he had transcended the moment. And I remember seeing that and saying to myself, I want some of that. And I didn't know what it was or how to get it. But that moment has stayed with me. And in fact, I found footage of that and I probably rewatch it on an annual basis now. So these 21 questions are built around who, what, when, where, why, how. Your parents are a who question because you, you don't pick your parents. You just learn what you learn from them. This question about role models is a what question because in effect, the role models that you identify is your first decision that you make about work. So what did you just tell us about Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? It was about voice. It was about transcendence. It was about this heightened, enlightened state of whatever you want to call it, spark, flow, meaning, communication, right? And it's not just that I'm looking at you with headphones on and a very high quality microphone in front of you, but I have to say in the encounters that you and I have had as short but meaningful as they've been, has been all about voice. And so if you want to know what you really have truly always wanted to do, this uh, uh, this guy, Mark Savickas, who sort of invented this space of what's called narrative career counsel construction, right? Which is this space that I'm adjacent to says, this is the number one question that, um, that he recommends that people ask. It's actually not the number one question I recommend, but it's the number one, but I have been out here, Jonathan, talking to people about the search. And I have asked a lot of people in podcast settings, not unlike this one and three separate people said that their role model was Jonathan Fields. And I have been looking forward to telling you this. Now, th these are not children. I'm entirely unsure how to even respond to that. Well, you don't need to that. respond to that, right? This is why I said I've been looking forward to this conversation because I knew that you wouldn't. And I mean, I didn't know, but I sort of knew, in fact, there's almost nothing you can say in response to this, which is why I didn't tell you in advance I was going to do it. But because it's the what, because it's what values you admire in them, what people are admiring in you, in you, is the value of betting on yourself, is the value of building a community, is the value of trying to get people to transcend and live a better life. And that is, if that is one of the things that people are listening to you for, the larger point here is the story is inside of you. The story you're trying to tell is our, one of the things that, the best single thing that Savik has told me, and I, by the way, talked to him after I'd done all the interviews because I didn't want him to shave my conversations. Yeah. He said, when someone comes to them and says, what should I do? I usually know within five minutes, he said, but I don't tell them because it's not, not my job to give them the answer. It's to help them discover the answer inside of you. When I ask people, what was the best advice they got in a work transition? Three quarters of people said, trust yourself. Do what you already think you should be doing. You are a natural storyteller. You do have this work story that's been going on in your head since you were a child, in your case, listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan, in my case, you know, looking at Pat Conroy. Um, uh, and people don't need a kick in the butt. <laughs> they need a pat on the back. Yeah. And, and the right questions. Um, so speaking of which, you said you actually have a different number one question. So what is it? What's your toothache? Mm, tell me more. 
At the very beginning of this project, I read a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, it was the last of his 156 fairy tales that he wrote about a young boy in Denmark, clearly a stand-in for Andersen, who has a way with words and is a sickly boy also. His aunt says to him, you got away with words. Someday you're going to be a poet. But he also has a lot of toothaches, as does his aunt. And one night, he's in a delirious toothachey dream. His This older woman, he, whom he calls Auntie Toothache, comes to him and says, every great poet has a great toothache. And I just crazy love this idea. And so I asked people in the years of asking millions of questions, it's, did you have a toothache as a child? And the most incredible stories, I'm thinking of a woman named Mary Robinson, who lost her father in New Jersey when she was 11. And at a time when she was told, you know, we don't mourn we don't mourn a loss like this. We like stiff upper lip it, you know, like buckle down and get to work. She descended into loneliness and turned out drinking and drugs and became, was so interested in fleeing. She became a flight attendant, came back, uh, worked for a corporate 50 company prudential and went home one night in her forties and had a conflict with her mother and went up to her childhood bedroom and lay down and realized that she had never confronted the grief that she had. And she walked away from a prestigious, well-paying job with a fortune 50 company to start and build. And now she's on her third one organization to help children and families uh, mourn the loss of a loved one. What I think, Jonathan, you know, my book is built around this formula, like work equals numbers plus words. Right. Two thirds of the time we talk about numbers when we talk about work, productivity, salary, benefits, stock price. But when you ask people, like when I ask people, what's the number one idea that comes to your mind when I say work, they don't talk, only a third talk about what they do, you know, union, manager, teacher, you know, aeronautics. Two thirds say how they feel about it. Happy, sad, depressed, purposeful, you know, exhausted, impactful. We need less math in the conversation around work and we need more literature. Yeah, so agree with that. I'm, as you described earlier, it's so aligned with the work that we've been doing um, here as well for the last few years, because I agree, it's just there's, we've been sort of like looking at the world of work and saying, you know, like, if it's not quantifiable, it's not real. So yes. we go to the stuff that's most easily quantifiable, which is the math. And yet it turns out the stuff that actually allows us to feel the way that we want to feel is the stuff that you're talking about. It's the words part of you know the, the equation. So I love the fact that you're pulling people back and saying, let's look at the story that we're telling. Let's take a narrative approach to this thing. There's if there's no career, if there's if the path has been blown up, if it ever really even existed, and now it's about you know like the invitation that you're offering is like, what is the story you want to tell with the work that you do, and more broadly with the life that you're living. That gets that evokes a very, very different exploration. And I love that you're inviting people into that, especially at this moment. Yeah, I'll just say a quick story. I, I, I was on CNBC the week this uh, the search was published, and I was in the green room with their star Fed reporter, right? And so I was saying, it seems to me that the conversation, even that like that the Fed is having, that the, that Wall Street is having, is missing this change, right? There, nine in ten people in a study out of Harvard said that they would give up twenty five percent of their lifetime earnings for work that they found meaningful, and the world of business is missing it because it is hard to quantify. But I also like and and really will feel touched by the word that you use because it means a lot to me, which is invitation. Because I do think that that's what this is, is that first of all, what people need is a 
permission structure to give themselves the invitation to do what they want to do, right? Get off the should train, as I call it, you know, and get on the want train, right? You do not have to chase someone else's dream. You can chase your own dream. And this is the big change that's happening. And how do you do it? You got to tell your story and you got to focus on your story as a story with pivots and it shifts and oscillations, some of which you control, but many of which you do not control. So my invitation to people is if you want to be happier in what you do, if you or someone you love is going through a work wake and 100 million Americans are going through one right now, come on this journey, meet these this insanely inspiring group of people that I've been talking to, and you will learn from them to give yourself permission to get the happiness that you seek and the meaning you crave, and most importantly, the success you deserve on your own terms. I love that. And it feels like the perfect place for us to wrap up. Um, to our listeners, absolutely dive into this book because we've sort of scratched the surface. We've offered up a bit of a framework and a, and a perspective shift here. But what's in the book itself, the search is really, it walks you through in a step-by-step way, the details, the questions, the framework, the, the prompts that will really help you do the work, do the, the mining, you know, like both in the past and the, the visioning into the future to really, I think, experience this moment with more agency and hope and possibility. Possibility. Bruce, always good exploring ideas with you. Thanks for uh, coming on to Spart and to our listening audience. We'll see you all next time. Take care. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.